Merry Christmas. Please be opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15. Ain't nothing in the world gets me more ready to celebrate Christmas than Jesus humiliating and infuriating the Pharisees and the scribes. Amen? It's the gift that keeps on giving on Christmas morning. And you, you would expect it that when Jesus, the Son of God, comes into the world to overthrow everything that the prior establishment had held to, that it's going to make some people mad. It's going to change everything for the better, but people hold on to the old because they don't realize that the new is better, and that's what we see with these scribes and these Pharisees. These high-ranking scribes and Pharisees thought they were going to come to town and show Jesus the error of his ways, as we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks. Well, they had another think coming, didn't they, Robin? Jesus was ready for them with boxing gloves on. And up to this point, we've seen Jesus absolutely castigate this Jerusalem Inquisition. This week, we're going to see Jesus escalate the assault. In verses 10 through 14, Matthew 10, 15, 10 through 14. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand, is that not that which enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but that which proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall in the pit. We're going to take some time and look this morning at Jesus' audience. Jesus' answer, the Pharisees and scribes' offense, and the Pharisees and scribes' offensiveness. So starting with Jesus' audience in verse 10, after Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, hear and understand. Let's think about what's going on here for a few minutes. Let's consider three things, why the crowds are so significant, or two things, why the crowds are so significant, and that Jesus answered the Pharisees and scribes' question, but he addressed the crowds instead of them. Let's think about that. Why are the crowds so significant? Well, the buzz around Jesus has reached an absolute fever pitch because Jesus' ministry was superior to anything that the masses had ever heard from the Pharisees and the scribes. And everybody knew it. Everybody, including the Pharisees and scribes, knew it. It was superior in three noteworthy ways. In wisdom, Jesus is speaking in a wisdom that just they can't even come close to matching. Where did this man get all this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they said in 1354? It exceeded them in authority. People didn't like authority much more at that time than they like it today. They wanted to beat around the bush and argue and debate, but nothing definitive. Well, the crowds were amazed at Jesus' teaching, 7, 28, and 29, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not like the scribes. He had this authority that was offensive. And not only in wisdom and authority, but in miraculous authentication. And that's the thing that really sets him apart because Jesus didn't just teach in their synagogues and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and heal, he healed every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And because of that, the news about him spread to all of Syria. And they brought him all who were ill and those suffering with various diseases and pains and demoniacs and epileptic and um, paralytics, and he healed them all. And in our next verse, we see the problem in verse 25. That's in 4.25. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. That's right, crowds flocked to Jesus. And you're going to see that throughout the book. If you just pay attention, the, Jesus came down from the mountain and 
8-1, large crowds followed him. In 9, 6-8, Jesus healed the paralytic. And when the crowds saw this, they were awestruck. And they glorified God that God had given such authority to men. And from here we're going to see this pattern play out again and again. Jesus has compassion and heals people. His reputation grows as news spreads. More needy people come to Jesus for healing. Jesus has compassion and heals, and heals people. Lather, rinse, repeat. Right? Over and over and over again. This same thing playing itself over. Just a little later in chapter 9, we see the problem really rear its head. He heals two blind men, and Jesus sternly warned them to see to it that nobody knew about it. But they went out and they spread the news all the more. Jesus knew that the Pharisees are getting kindly upset about all the attention that he's getting. Spread news spread everywhere throughout all the land. And as they were going out, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him. And after the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds were amazed, saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Well, wait a minute. The Pharisees and scribes have been in Israel. So Jesus is being looked at as superior to anything that the Pharisees and scribes had ever done. And they got jealous. Although everybody knew Jesus' ministry was greater than anything any of them had ever seen, that didn't make them like it. They absolutely hated it. So right after that last healing one occasion that I told you, the Pharisees went out ultimately and they conspired against Jesus how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of that, withdrew. Many followed and he healed them all and warned them again not to tell who he was. He didn't want more and more attention. But you can't hide this kind of awesome, can you? <laughs> you just can't hide it. So that's what we saw throughout chapter 14. Even when Jesus wanted to withdraw and lay low and take a break, he couldn't do it because he found himself compassionately pouring himself out in ministry, which of course drew more people and more attention. And that's a problem because they hated the attention Jesus was getting from the crowds because they wanted the attention of the crowds for themselves. That's the problem. And as we saw last week, attention and prestige was actually the Pharisees and scribes' functional God. Jesus had warned about it on the Sermon on the Mount. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father in heaven. But that's why they did everything that they did. They wanted to be noticed, but when there's something better than you, you're not noticed as much. Man, like that. The warning went unheeded. Speaking of the scribes and Pharisees, uh, later we'll see Jesus come right out and say in chapter 23, 5-7, They do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and they lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the places of honor at the banquets, the chief seats in the synagogues, the respectful greetings in the marketplace, and being called rabbi by men. They loved that stuff. And since Jesus was getting more attention from the crowds than, I mean, than, than they were, they, were, they envied him to the point of hatred. We even find out ultimately at the very end of the book, which we'll get to at some point in 27, 18, Pilate knew that it was because of envy that they had handed Jesus over. So we've seen now why the crowds are so significant, but let's consider how that the Pharisees and scribes would have taken it when Jesus answered the Pharisees and scribes' question, but he answered it to the crowds instead of to them. Notice verse 10. After Jesus called the crowds to them, to him, he said to them, hear and understand. Remember that this, these Jerusalem-based Pharisees and scribes have come down to Galilee because they are concerned about reports that they've heard that Jesus is influencing the crowds against the tradition of the elders. That's what's going on. They're hearing that report. They've came down. And in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he had told, they, they know, he told the multitudes that unless their righteousness exceeded the righteousness of, you know, the scribes and Pharisees, that they couldn't even enter the kingdom of heaven in 520. He then quoted and refuted the tradition of the elders six times in 521 through 48. He mocked the way they did their most emphasized righteous deeds, their almsgiving, their public prayers, and their twice weekly fasts. He mocked it and said there was no reward for it because of the way they did it, ostentatiously. They surely heard of Jesus touching folks that their tradition said were untouchables, which we saw in Matthew 8, that he fellowshiped with tax collectors and sinners. Pharisees didn't do that in 9, 9 through 13. And then most recently in 12, 1 through 13, he violated their rules concerning Sabbath keeping. 
That last one led to the Pharisees going out and conspiring as how they might destroy him. The biggest problem they have with Jesus is that he's undermining everything that they've taught. He is pushing against the tradition of the elders and he's make, it's making them look like absolute fools. Jesus' teaching accompanied with the authenticating miracles is strongly indicating that all the religious experts have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. They didn't like that. So when the Jerusalem-based Pharisees and scribes show up, sure enough, Jesus is again disregarding another one of their traditions, right? That's what we've seen over the last couple of weeks. His disciples are eating without washing their hands. If a person didn't wash their hands before they ate and they had accidentally touched a dead body or a menstruous woman or a Gentile or anything they or some or, or, or anything that they or someone else unclean had touched, if they even touched something that somebody like that had touched, then they believed that they had become unclean. And that was a big deal for the scribes and Pharisees. Although being ceremonially unclean wasn't sinful, they reasoned that it's certainly better to be clean than unclean. And any truly holy person would never disregard ceremonial cleanliness. It seems as if they pulled Jesus aside to ask him why the disciples broke the tradition of the elders by eating without washing their hands. They, they hey, come here, right? we, we need to talk. We need to talk about what your disciples are doing. I don't know if you realize what it's implying. I mean, they're, they're eating without washing their hands, and that's implying that our tradition's wrong. Why do I say that it seems they pulled him aside? Well, 15.1, look at it. Some scribes and Pharisees, they came to Jesus, so it doesn't mention anyone else being present. By itself, you might think, well, the crowds were there observing, but remember in our text today, after Jesus called the crowds to him. So obviously they have came to Jesus over to the side, and then after they've had this encounter that we've already covered, where he's already rebuked them and called them out for their fault, their wrong standard, not looking to God's word, and called them hypocrites, right after that, he called out to the crowds and got them to come over to him. So the, the, the Pharisees and scribes, Pulled Jesus aside. They wanted to deal with this quietly. They wanted to help Jesus see the error of his ways. Perhaps they wanted to reason with him as more seasoned mentors. Remember, Jesus is just around 30 years old. These are old, seasoned, grizzled, godly, holy men, they think. And, it, you know, the Spirit's kind of like, hey, young feller, you know, you're doing a lot of good work here, but you've got, you're a bit too zealous. You're too radical. Hey, young guys, when everybody comes at you telling you you're too zealous and too radical, you need to listen, but you don't need to just swallow it. You need to listen and consider. But, you know, sometimes being zealous and radical can be a really good thing. You know that? You're too zealous. You're too radical. Sure, we need a reformation in Judaism, but you can't just disregard the tradition of the elders. People are going to see disciples eating with unwashed hands and infer that the tradition of the elders doesn't matter. Well, we'll return to Jesus' private response to them, which we've already covered in the last two sermons a little later on. But in this private rebuke, Jesus didn't answer their question one-on-one -on -one with them, over to the side. He didn't even answer their question. He rebuked them, but he didn't answer their question. So now Jesus is ready to answer. They are concerned about what Jesus is communicating to the crowds by his actions. So Jesus takes the worry away from them. He's going to answer their questions, but he's going to answer it to the crowds themselves. Come here, crowds. You're afraid I'm going to infer by what I'm doing that I disregard the tradition of the elders? Hey, cut, crowds. They've asked this question. Crowds, they've asked this question. Jesus called to the crowds and he said, hear and understand. He said to them, hear and understand. So he, this Jerusalem Inquisition, he's just rebuked them. He calls the crowds and they're quite, he's not looking at them anymore. I mean, you talk about boldness. I'm, I'm, not even, I'm, not, I'm going to answer your question, but I'm not going to, I'm not, you're not a concern of mine. I'm going to talk to the crowds that you're concerned about me poisoning by my behavior. Now this can go one of two ways. Jesus can say, heart issues matter, but these externals that the Pharisees emphasize, they're important too. Now what I've been doing this whole time is telling you that heart issues matter too and you've been ignoring those, but these externals, they matter. They could have kind of formed an alliance there, couldn't they? Might have worked out okay if it goes that way. 
might be fine. What, what these Pharisees and scribes are teaching is mostly right, but it needs a tweak or patchwork like the wedding garment. Let's put a patch on this old wedding garment. It's, it's, it's a good garment, but it's got some holes in it. Let's patch it up a little bit and it'll be fine. If it goes that way, he's probably not going to have any problems. But what is Jesus' answer? Jesus' answer is verse 11. It's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. Well, they don't have to wonder if Jesus rejects the universally accepted tradition of the elders anymore, do they? And just to make his answer even more infuriating to this council, he stated it directly to the crowds of people whom he has spent countless hours ministering to with miraculous healing. So they're already upset. Their hearts turn to Jesus. We can't compete with this, but he's poisoning their minds against what we teach and say is important. I'm afraid they're going to infer what we say doesn't matter. He's like, no, you're afraid they'll infer? They ain't got to infer. I'm going to answer straight to them and tell them what they are emphasizing doesn't matter at all. Man, Jesus was a boss, wasn't he? Wow! The Pharisees and scribes were not comfortable with what was in their mind. A poor example being set by Jesus. I can only imagine how red their faces got when he doubled down, pulled the crowds in, and explicitly taught against their tradition. Talking to the crowds and not to them. Let's look at the implications of both these assertions and some not too subtle implications of what Jesus has said. First, what the Pharisees and scribes have taught about purity laws is wrong. That's the immediate obvious thing. It's not that which enters into the mouth that defiles a man. They've said that which enters into your mouth. If you don't wash your hands, it's going to make you unclean. You're going to be defiled. Jesus says, nope, (laughs) wrong. (laughs) No, it's not. But what proceeds out of the mouth defiles the man. Word order is used in Greek for emphasis. In in English it matters for meaning. In Greek it matters for emphasis. And the first word in the Greek here is the word not. He puts it at the first. Not! It serves as a sort of exclamation point. It is not. In in my notes, I put it is, and I put not in all capital letters, and I bolded it, and I italicized it, and I underlined it. Because it's got that sort of emphasis by putting not first. Not these external things that the Pharisees have emphasized can cause a person to be defiled. Jesus knew very well that his statement about ceremonial washings demolished the very foundation of their tradition and that they would be greatly offended by it. And he meant to offend them. You know, it's not always wrong to offend. Oh man, I I hope I didn't offend him. I hope I didn't offend him unless I needed to offend him. You know, sometimes it's appropriate to offend somebody. If the truth offends somebody, you need to offend somebody. And sometimes you need to just rip the band-aid off and be the offense and let God do His work through His truth. God works through truth, not through your presentation of it. Right? Jesus didn't present things the way we always think that we should if we're going to be good and Christian because we've got Christian messed up. We're a bunch of pietists. That's not who Jesus was. Jesus says their religion is damnable. Everything about them was an offense to Jesus' holy sensibilities. He didn't coddle. He didn't debate. And I ain't seeing no winsomes. Jesus isn't advocating for a minor modification of their religious tradition. He's ushering in something radically new. That's what we celebrate at Christmas is there's something radically new that's happened. No one puts a patch on unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. When total replacement has to take place, you can't just patch it up. Jesus is warning that defilement is not something that they might casually acquire by physical contact accidentally and which might easily be removed by appropriate ritualistic practices. Only the poor in spirit can accept that which is theirs, which is why it's only theirs who the kingdom of heaven belongs to. You've got to be poor in spirit and realize, hey, it's not just external things that make me wrong. It's that I'm wrong. 
I'm spiritually destitute, poor in spirit. There's nothing in me to commend me to God. It's not that I did something externally accidentally and now I'm unclean and if I wash I can be holy again. It's that I'm not holy down to my very core. There's no quick fix to this. Jesus is ushering in something different and better that's going to cleanse not just your hands, but it's going to cleanse your heart, which is where the problem is. Something that affects the person at the very root of his or her being. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Our nature is broken. And as such, we're defiled at heart. And if we're not cleansed, made new, we will spread that uncleanness to others. We, we will not spread uncleanness contracted by what we touch, but we can spread uncleanness by who we are. Spiritual defilement, this is MacArthur, is a matter of the inside, not the outside. Don't be deceived and misled by the foolish traditions that you've been taught, Jesus was saying. The practice of washing your hands before you eat has nothing to do with making you undefiled. What matters is what is in your heart. It's the evil in your heart which eventually proceeds out of your mouth that defiles you. True defilement is not external and ritual, but internal and moral. Not external and ritual, but internal and moral. And the, the things that... This is another implication. You don't have to think much to see... And the Pharisees would have got it. And knowing Jesus' entire teaching background, he's taught more than just this, they would have picked up on the, that the things that the Pharisees and scribes have taught defiles them. Like They're concerned with my disciples being defiled because they ate with unwashed hands. Well, they are defiled because what's proceeded out of them is dirty. It is defiled. Now, within this answer, Jesus is jabbing the Pharisees again, isn't he? He's warning the crowds of the corruptible influence of the Pharisees. He expected both the crowds and the Pharisees themselves to understand what he was saying. Consider the context. Look back to Matthew 15, 1-6, the immediate context. Some of the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. They're saying, you and your disciples are defiled because you didn't teach them to regard purity laws. And what did Jesus answer? He answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you what? You say. You say. What's proceeded out of you? God's command was this, and it's holy and undefiled and undefilable. Honor your father and mother and don't ever speak evil of your parents or you're worthy of the death penalty. You are undefiled. You are defiled if you do these things. But you say that people can do that. Whoever says to his father and mother, whatever that would help you has been given to God, he's not to honor his father and mother. What's proceeded out of your mouth has made you defiled and it has spread the defilement to others who have followed your teaching. And by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Jesus says, your heart is far from God. So you say things that are far from the heart of God, which makes you unclean before Him. Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God? The sins you've committed, you're a transgressor, makes you defiled before a holy God. Not if you touch stuff. Not that. And it's a capital offense. Worthy to be put to death. He did the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? You have heard that the ancients were told you should not commit murder. Remember that? That's what the, that's what the ancients just... They limited the commandment of God to and just one thing. Don't commit murder. But Jesus says it's heart deep. Whoever, he says, I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. You're, you're not going deep enough. You're teaching something that allows people to still be guilty and it defiles you and it's defiling the people that you teach. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool will be what? Guilty enough to go into fiery hell. What you're teaching is proceeding out of your heart because of your impure heart you want to excuse sin and it's leaving you in a defiled state and defiling everybody that you're teaching. 
Does it with adultery too, doesn't it? Don't commit adultery. What? If you look on a woman to lust with her, you've committed adultery already in your heart. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Why? Because it's better to enter into heaven with one, with, with one, arm, with one hand and one eye missing than for your whole body to be what? Thrown into hell. What you're teaching is a standard of only externals when your heart's the problem. And it's proceeding out of you because you want to excuse your sin. You're already defiled. And you're spreading the defilement through what you're teaching to everyone else. They're teaching a standard that lets them appear outwardly righteous while remaining inwardly guilty. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount where he warned them, beware of false prophets. He's warning about them. Who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. So every good tree brings forth good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. And we're going to see that language of plants being uprooted again very soon aren't we? He's returning back to that idea that false prophets are going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Every plant that the, Father, that the Heavenly Father didn't plant will be uprooted. It's, he's, once again, that's what he's getting at. See it again in 12, 23 through 24. All the crowds were amazed when Jesus had performed an, a miraculous healing and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? So the crowds are saying, hey, this Jesus, might be, he might be the Messiah. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this man casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And what's Jesus' take on that? Here's his response. Either make the tree good in its fruit or make the tree bad in its fruit. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of which fills the heart. The good man out of the good treasure brings forth what is good and the evil man out of the evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account thereof on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. You're going to be judged. Judged, Pharisees, by what you're teaching, and you've rejected me and everything I've taught because your hearts are wicked, because you care about what men think, not what God says. That's what Jesus is getting at. Remember that defilement. We've, we've touched on this, but that defilement transfers. If another person touches or associates with someone who's unclean, it made that person unclean as well, right? That's, that's what their tradition said. That's how ritualistic uncleanness worked. Well, Jesus is teaching us in this text that moral uncleanness works the same way. What is the outcome of the blind leading the blind? We'll get to that in a minute. The blind lead the blind and both fall in the ditch. We'll return to that two points from now. But Jesus has maintained this idea throughout the whole Gospel of Matthew. Remember in Matthew 10, in the missionary discourse, whoever doesn't receive you, he tells the disciples, or heed your words, you all are coming with what I've taught. If they won't receive your new doctrine, what you're teaching, this new emphasis on true purity, if they won't receive, receive you or your words as you go out of that house or city, what? Shake off the dust from your feet. Why did they shake off the dust from their feet in Gentile cities? I say to you, it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Day of Judgment for you. They shook off the dust from their feet so they wouldn't bring defilement from Gentile places into Israel. And he's saying, any of these Israelites that won't receive your ministry, shake off the dust from them, have nothing to do with them like you would a Gentile, because being around them will defile others. If you're around them, if you let people associate with them, it will bring that defilement, just like you think the Gentiles' dust will, being around them and associating with these people who reject your ministry will, even though they're Jews. Beware of the Matthew 16 leaven of the Pharisees. And they understood that it was not talking about bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees, that the leaven would spread. The teaching of the Pharisees, it would spread. It's a defiling principle. It's a defiling agent. It spreads. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Don't have anything to do with them. It'll spread. Legalistic external righteousness spreads. We've got to be on guard for it all the time. It'll spread and get us. 23.15 
Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you travel on land and sea to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, what? He becomes twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. It spreads. Them being around you will spread the defilement. It'll make everybody unclean and worthy of hell if they follow your teachings. And 23, 27 through 28, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones. What happened to... And all uncleanness or all defilement. What, who you are, you look good on the outside like a tomb. You touch a tomb, you're fine. But if you touch the dead men's bones... You're unclean and you're, you're full of dead men's bones and uncleanness and it transfers to others. That's who, the, that's who they are. You appear righteous, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It's not just here that Jesus is calling the crowds to teach them truths and turn their hearts toward Him. He's also warning the crowds against the Pharisees and scribes' falsehoods to turn their hearts away from them. He wants to do both. Now, they don't like that last part. They might have been somewhat okay with that first part. They sure don't like that last part. Hey, guys, I want to I point out real, real quick because it's just it's a direct implication of our text. We, as ministers of the gospel, we've got to teach truth, but we also have to warn of error and we have to warn of false teachings. And we have to, when, when you might be uncomfortable when we say, hey, evangelicalism is going this direction, Gospel Coalition has become a Marxist organization, we need to be, mark them and avoid them because it'll spread defilement to our whole church. And it might make you uncomfortable when I say that, but I'm following in the footsteps of King Jesus when I do it. We've got to warn. Because it is. This external virtue signaling sort of religion has become the new tradition of the elders. It's a, it's a, it's a, I keep going back to that application because it's a great application. And of course, after this, what do we find out? Unsurprisingly, the, the scribes and Pharisees are offended. Let's look at their offense in verse 12. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? Again, we see the direct pointed and fearless masculinity of Christ placed next to the indirect, sneaky, cowardly Pharisees. Apparently the Pharisees went and whined to the disciples that Jesus offended. The word literally scandalized their... Jesus has become a stumbling block to us. You think? <laughs> of course they were offended by His teaching. And they went to the disciples to tell them instead of talking to Jesus about it. Why? Because they were sniveling cowards. That's who they were. Why would the Pharisees be offended? Well, let's think about it. I mean, it's pretty easy. They asked Jesus why his disciples didn't wash when they ate, and instead of answering them, he came at them, didn't he? We, seen we preached on it for two weeks, how he came at them. He said they'd spent their whole life mastering a religious tradition that was not only wrong, but that was actually wicked. He called them hypocrites or mask wearers who only pretended to be righteous to please men. That'd kind of make somebody mad, wouldn't it? That'd offend them. He told them that, uh, that their honoring of God with their lips was only lip service because their hearts were far from Him. He called the tradition of the elders their tradition, not the tradition of the elders, and said that it was merely the commandments of men. He told them that, that they were the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 29, 13 through 14. And they absolutely hated the people that Isaiah was talking to in Isaiah 29, 13 through 14. And blamed them for the Babylonian captivity. And he's saying, hey, you're a greater fulfillment of everything they were. Seven. When Jesus did finally answer their questions, he did it in the most disrespectful way possible. He called the crowds over and addressed them with the answer to the question instead of discussing it with the scribes and the Pharisees. He told the crowds, eight, in front of the Pharisees and scribes that something the crowds had heard the Pharisees and scribes teach their entire lives was completely wrong, that washing one's hands did nothing to purify a man in the sight of God. And then ninth and lastly, he said that that which came out of a man made men unclean in the sight of God. And the crowds knew that Jesus had taught against the tradition of the elders that they had been teaching His entire ministry and He highlighted their hypocrisy. So in essence, Jesus is saying, don't worry about ceremonial washing of your hands if you want to be clean. If you want to be clean, stay away from those guys. Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard that statement? Uh, yeah, He knew. He wasn't stupid. He did it to offend them. 
because they either needed to repent or they needed to expose themselves as offspring of the sons of the brood of vipers that they were. And you can't just tiptoe around these things. He hit things head on. Yeah, the Pharisees were offended when they heard that statement. Now the disciples seem to be somewhat afraid or uncomfortable about what transpired. It's understandable why, isn't it? They surely thought that a good relationship with the religious leaders would help their messianic cause. Hey guys, we don't need to network well for the gospel to, to, to advance. We don't need to have the right connections with the right famous people or well-connected people and be on the good terms with people who can help us do a good job and get things out there. The preaching of the gospel by itself will do it. And the living out of it will do that. That's what will do it. Not who we associate with. But the Pharisees didn't, I mean, the disciples didn't quite get that yet. Now the Pharisees are offended or scandalized. They've seen this entire encounter as a stumbling block to their support. And they're like, man, we could have had them on our team. And if you're wanting to take over Rome, having them on our team would have been an asset. He's going to take over Rome whether they like it or not. He's going to do it with a cross, not a sword, and he don't need their help. Right? And had the disciples, you know, maybe they've been a little bit afraid. I bet they were. He told them in the missionary discourse, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. But these disciples were mere men. They understand the cloud of the Jerusalem delegation here. They know that some are conspiring against them already. William Hendrickson threw out the possibility. Were they perhaps fearful of the possible consequences of the sharp rebuke their master had administered? I'd say it's beyond just possible, yeah. They're afraid they're going to end up just like John the Baptist with their head cut off is what they're thinking. These people came down with the clout of the Sanhedrin court with them to put Jesus under the microscope to see if he's orthodox or not. And Jesus, instead of coddling them or trying to play it nice, he came at them first privately and then brought it publicly to make them look like fools in front of all the crowds, which is their greatest concern. Yeah, they're probably scared. But be amazed at the unflappable Jesus. He isn't concerned at all about whether or not the Pharisees and scribes are offended by him. Jesus does, however, want the disciples to know how objectionable he finds them to be, though. And now he answers the disciples. He's just with the disciples, and here's the answer he gives about their offensiveness. He says, he answered and said to them, verses 13 and 14, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind, and if the blind man guides a blind man, both will fall in the pit. Two points are made, or reiterated. The Pharisees are headed toward destruction, and whoever follows them will be destroyed as well. That's the points he's making. They are headed for destruction. He said to them, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant will be uprooted. Let them alone. The metaphor of God planting also has roots, pun intended, you like that? It has roots in Isaiah, which he's alluded to over and over again in this episode, hasn't he? In Isaiah 61.3, the redeemed people of God in Zion are oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display His glory. He ain't going to uproot it. It's an oak of righteousness planted by the Lord. We see the same metaphor in Isaiah 5-7 and Isaiah 60-21 and in many Old Testament passages where God planted a people. Sometimes he refers to it as the plants being vines, sometimes fruit trees, sometimes oaks, but it's always planted by God. That's the common thing. We saw Jesus use the idea of plants planted by God and some that were not earlier in Matthew. Turn with me to Matthew 13-24-30. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. Two chapters ago, right? And he went away. And when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then do you, does it have tares? And he said, An enemy has done this. 
And the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go up and to gather them? But he said, No. For while you are gathering up the tares, you might uproot the wheat also. And he says, Allow both to grow together. Do you see the parallel here? Let them alone. Allow both to grow together. You see it? They're the tares that the enemy has sold. We don't have to get rid of them right now. Their day is coming though because until the harvest and in that time of the harvest I will say to the reapers gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up and gather the wheat into my barns. We don't have to do anything about them. Yeah, they're upset. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. Their day is coming. Now we made the case. I wanted to re-preach the old sermon but I'm not going to re-preach the old sermon. Go back and listen to the two sermons on the wheat and the tares to, to get that. But that judgment was going to come but it was going to come after the cross. It was going to come that, 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 that he would not break the bruised reed or extinguish the smoldering wick until he had brought justice to victory, until he had died on the cross to graft in the Gentiles. And then after that, he would bring judgment on that generation of Jews. And he did in 70 AD. He burned them up. He visited with judgment, destroyed the temple, and the slain of the Lord at that time was indeed many, wasn't it? Now remember, Jesus told the crowd that parable, but only the disciples asked for an explanation. And he gives the explanation in 13:36 through 43, where he tells them directly that the tares are the sons of the evil one, that the enemy had sold them uh, was the devil, and that the harvest was at the end of that old Jewish age, and the reapers were the angels. And so the disciples, do you think they knew what Jesus was getting to when they came to him here in 15 and asked and told him, hey, the, the Pharisees and scribes, they were offended by what you said. <laughs> Don't worry about it. They're destined to be uprooted and burned up. Jesus is clearly identifying these Pharisees as the tares who will be uprooted and cast into the furnace of fire. It goes all the way back, if you remember, when John the Baptist was preaching. This thread is ran all the way through the book of Matthew. When John the Baptist saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to him for baptism, he said, You brood of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping your repentance. And do not suppose you can say to yourself, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones... God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's these scribes and Pharisees. They weren't planted by the Lord. They're going to be uprooted and they're going to be thrown into the fire. Jesus' winnowing fork, like John had said, was in hand. And he would thoroughly clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barns, but would burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Why? Because unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But not only that, it's not only they who will be uprooted and thrown in the fire, but whoever follows them will be destroyed. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall in the pit. Guys, if you are poor in spirit enough to recognize your own blindness, don't follow bad teachers. Don't follow the... He's warning them, don't follow these people. The disciples might have still thought, Jesus is the greatest, greatest, great teacher in the whole wide world. But these guys are really good too. He's saying, no, 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 no. I am the greatest teacher in the whole wide world. And these guys, they are way out in left field. They're going in the wrong direction like blind men wandering through a field who have no idea where they're going. Don't follow them. This could be translated, keep away from them and have nothing to do with them. Remember when Ephraim had joined, to get, uh, joined itself together with idols in, uh, in Hosea and God said, let him alone? Remember that? Don't have, don't, God said that because those people had been abandoned to judgment. He's saying these people have been abandoned to judgment. Don't follow them or you're following them into judgment. Jesus calling the Pharisees blind guides was a play on their own description of themselves. They called themselves leaders of the blind. And Jesus is saying, yeah, you're leaders of the blind, but you're blind too. Jesus was a little bit witty. A little bit of a cutting sarcasm to him. 
I have, I have people that think all sarcasm is always sinful. If so, we have no atonement for our sins because Jesus could be really sarcastic at times. And if he's a sinner, we're in big trouble. There's a place for it. And he used it. And he used it masterfully. And he used it more and more cuttingly and more frequently than anybody I've ever seen when you actually read the Bible and you think about what's going on. They're to keep away from the Pharisees and leave them unheeded. Teachers like these could not lead them nearer to God. They're blind guides, a charge that will be repeated in 23.16. Woe to you blind guides who say, notice, who say by your words, it's not that which comes into a man that defiles a man, but that which comes out. You're blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that's nothing. But if you swear by the gold in the temple, he's obligated. They had this this, uh, rules that would let them defraud people. They could swear, but if people didn't know their rules, they could take advantage of people because I didn't swear by the right thing. It made people twice as much the sons of hell as they were. And it made them guilty and unclean before God. And they taught other people to do it, which led them to fall into the ditch. They emphasized the ritual cleanness, but excused unjust, merciless, unfaithful hearts. Another example of that which proceeds out of the mouth defiling them and anyone who listened. If these leaders of Israel have themselves missed the way in their understanding of what it means to be the people of God, then their influence on other Jews can only lead them to the same pit of empty religion. The pit physically referred to holes that were dug in fields or pastures and filled with water for use of drinking uh, troughs for animals. A blind man walking through a field would eventually fall into these pits because they didn't know where they were going. So they would get people to lead them and to guide them. That was the analogy. But there's a greater meaning here. The spiritual meaning of pit, which Jesus uses again and again, is hell. They will be thrown into the pit, the furnace of fire. The blind guides are the Pharisees themselves, and the other blind are their converts who became twice as much the son of hell as they. It's spiritually dangerous to stay around apostates. I warn you of that. Guys, we need to be more and more intentional to be with people with a solid worldview. It is spiritually dangerous to stay around apostates and others who steadfastly reject and oppose the gospel of Christ. If there's opportunity to witness to them, it should be done, but with great caution that we should snatch them out of the fire, as it were. And being careful not to get burned ourselves in the process. Jude 23. We should not even listen to the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. That's what it says in 1 Timothy 6.20. We, we, we want to debate with apostates instead of marking them and avoiding them. Have you noticed today when... Now that the secularists have came to control, they won't even debate with the Christians. Have you noticed that? They won't even, like, I'm not going to debate. Because we're so irrelevant to them. They won't even debate with us. Because they're, they're, they see themselves as, an, as an, in a position of power. Where Christians went wrong a generation ago is when we were in the position of power, we, we would put them on stage next to us. And we'd say, well, their authorities in their sphere and we're authorities in ours and let you all judge between who makes more sense. Guys, we don't give equal footing. They're not authorities at all. We decry them, we mark them, we avoid them. We don't listen to the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge according to 1 Timothy 6.20. Exposing ourselves to such people and such teaching risks spiritual disaster. Paul picked up on this as well in 2 Corinthians 6, 14-17. He tells them, look at this imagery, same thing Jesus is saying, Paul said it. You'd think that Paul was a disciple of Jesus or something, right? Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Man, we, we've, we've gotten rid of being a separate people. Listen, what, listen very closely. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. We only apply that to marriage. And guys, absolutely. It needs to be said because it wasn't said for so long, people have no idea who they should marry. Okay? So I'm going to come out and say, yes, it does apply to marriage. Marry a believer. Marry somebody who you want to aspire to be more like because they're like Jesus. And you all are going toward Jesus together. And as you both grow toward Jesus, toward God, you're going to grow together and closer and closer together. Marry that person. Do not be unequally yoked together in believers. But it, it, it does apply here. But it's not just talking about who you marry. 
For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And then this is this, verse 17. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate. And listen to this covenant language. Says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. Don't associate, like these Pharisees there, what's coming out of them defiles a man. Don't be around them because if you blind follow the blind, they'll both fall in the ditch. I, I, so, many, so many Christians go to secular counselors to find out how they need to be living their lives instead of turning to other Christians and to the Word of God itself. What are we doing? There's no place for us to go to secular people who don't have Jesus as the ultimate answer. Well, they've got valuable things to say. No, they don't. Come out from among them. Don't touch what is unclean. God will welcome you. You want to be like Jesus, don't get your counsel from people who don't believe in Jesus. It's really that simple. So what do we learn from all this? What's, what's changed? Jesus overthrew all that stuff, guys. What you touch and all that stuff, all these externals, that's all gone because of Christmas. Because Jesus came. He came and perfectly embodied the whole totality of the law. And all those cleanliness laws, they're all fulfilled because now we are touched by Christ and made new. And we now are cleansed from heart-deep heart cleansing. And now we're to be the agent that goes and we spread the purity of God, the purity of Christ, the message of the gospel which can save the entire world. Don't think, hey, I don't do this and I do do that and that's going to make me holy before God. No, I trust in Christ who did everything perfectly and He's made me pure and now I'm going to go out and proclaim that message that can also purify the world. You'll never do enough to be pure in the sight of God, but Jesus has done enough to make sure you are. Let's celebrate that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Lord, we thank You so much that You... Uh, are that you have overthrown everything. That, that you've overthrown the whole false systems that we might look to and attach ourselves to. And God, we pray that you would uh, help us to live and revel in that great joy today and every day, not just on Christmas Day, but all throughout our lives, that we would celebrate the good news that Christ has cleansed us from all defilement and help us to be that agent of change and to gravitate to people who will help us be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.